It was a crisp, bright morning aboard a transatlantic cruise liner sailing between the ports of France and New York City. A charming young Austrian man with hooded, burning eyes and slick, dark hair swept backwards studied the rich, unsuspecting travelers aboard the ship. Standing at five foot seven and weighing just over 140 pounds, the man was of slight build, hardly imposing. He moved to speak with a small group of successful businessmen, engaging in casual small talk with them, impressing them with his wit and charming them with his poise. As skilled raconteur, he could subtly steer the conversation to discussions of wealth accumulation. When the businessman would inevitably ask after his own wealth, he would reluctantly reveal a small cedarwood box with complicated rollers and brass dials. He would claim that the box, fitted with sophisticated-looking printing machinery, had a very special function. He would then proceed to demonstrate the workings of the box and would ask for someone in the audience to provide him with an authentic $100 bill. Someone always would, out of sheer curiosity, hand over a note, and the man would carefully insert it into the device through a narrow slot. He would then turn a crank, which would pull the note into the device, engage a lever, and check his watch. He claimed the machine was designed to make copies of the banknotes using radium, the scientific chemical process, he told his spectators, would take six to eight hours. They would nod their heads and scuffle away, more than happy to spend that time playing cards or dining with friends. Upon their return, the Austrian would open a drawer within the box and reveal two seemingly authentic $100 bills. Voila, he would exclaim, to surprised and eager onlookers. Before long, his affluent spectators would inquire as to how they might come into possession of such a money box. With a great show of reluctance, the Austrian would state that a box of this nature was almost impossible to come by, and he would only consider parting with it for the right price. Potential marks for con artists like Victor at the time, called their victims marks instead of suckers, would bid against one another over several days at sea. They would eventually end up paying the Austrian $10,000, sometimes even twenty dollars or $30,000 for the device. The six-hour delay was a clever touch. Not only would it add an air of authenticity to his tall claims, but it would also allow him plenty of time to sneak away. Before any suspicions could be raised about the machinations of the device, the smoothest con man that ever lived would be long gone. This is Grifter, and I'm your host, Sonali Burgis. Victor Lustig was born in 1890 
in the Austrian-Hungarian town of Hostine, now part of the Czech Republic. His hometown was located in a sleepy little village nestled in the Kraknosche Mountains. According to prison papers, Victor stated that he was raised in a grim stone house by poor peasant parents. He claimed he had to resort to petty theft to survive, only stealing from people that he deemed dishonest and greedy. These descriptions of his childhood were in stark contrast to the boastful claims he made during his crime spree. He claimed that he hailed from a long line of aristocrats in Europe and that his father, Ludwig, was the mayor of his hometown. As a child, Victor was confident, charming and poised, getting along well with adults and friends of his parents. He spoke several languages, including Czech, English, German and Italian. He was clever, observant and perceptive, meticulously observing and studying patterns in people's behaviors. During his teenage years, Victor honed his skills in pickpocketing, burglary and street hustling. According to True Detective Mysteries magazine, he gradually made his way up the criminal ladder, progressing from panhandling to outright burglary. He perfected every card trick known to man, including, quote, palming, slipping cards from the deck, and dealing from the bottom. His most successful scam was the Romanian money box, which he claimed could copy and duplicate banknotes. In November 1919, he married Roberta Noret, an attractive young girl from Kansas. Lustig's late daughter wrote in her memoir that Lustig kept his family's secret away from the limelight and lavished his fraudulent gains on them. He also spent heavily on gambling and on his mistress, Billy May, the seductive proprietor of a million-dollar prostitution ring. World War I put an end to Lustig's antics on the cruise liners when the services of transatlantic liners were suspended. At the start of the Roaring Twenties, Victor moved to the United States and quickly developed a reputation for swindling in 40 American cities under 47 different aliases. He came to be known as the Scarred Man, thanks to a deep two-and-a-half-inch gash along his left cheek, courtesy of a Parisian love rival. In the 1920s, America was rife with confidence rackets, organized by certain immigrants like Charles Ponzi. They behaved not as unruly thugs, but as refined gentlemen. Theirs was a different art of criminality entirely, and one with which Lustig associated. In 1922, Victor traveled to Missouri and discovered an old ramshackle farm that had just been repossessed by a bank. He expressed great interest in the farm that no one deemed worthy of a second look. 
At some point during his illustrious criminal career, he earned the nickname Count for his suave and worldly demeanor. As Count Victor Lustig, he was able to deliver a spectacular sob story of how his life of nobility in Austria had been destroyed during the First World War. He claimed to have come to America to rebuild his life with what was left of the family fortune. He said he wished to do this by going into the farming lifestyle. The bankers were more than happy to sell him the farm in exchange for $20,000 in Liberty Bonds. He managed to persuade them to exchange an additional $10,000 in bonds for cold, hard cash. He asserted that he required liquid operating capital to kickstart his farming endeavors. The bankers readily obliged. In fact, they were so happy to be rid of what they deemed a worthless farm that they failed to notice that the Count had switched the envelopes and disappeared with both the bonds and the cash. In a separate scam, while traveling in Montreal, the Count set his sights on a Vermont banker named Linus Merton. Victor arranged for a thief to pick Merton's pocket one day. His plan was to play the hero and appear before Merton a few hours later, wallet in hand. All he wanted to do was win Merton's trust. He told Merton the same story he told the bankers in Missouri, that he was a washed-up Austrian aristocrat trying to rebuild his life in America. He claimed to have a cousin, Emil, who worked at a bookie joint and could supposedly intercept the race wires. Emile would learn of the winners of the horse race several minutes before the local betting windows closed. He asked Merton if he wanted to place a bet before Emile moved away with his new wife. Merton, who had been on a winning streak at the time, felt pressured and agreed. He wound up losing $30,000 to the con man. In 1925, Victor arrived in Paris, ready to graduate to grander schemes. He'd learned from a newspaper article that the Eiffel Tower, today a wonder of the world, was rusting and in need of expensive repairs and maintenance. We're going to have to digress a bit and talk about the history of the Eiffel Tower, which will help to explain why Victor did what he did. Erected in 1889 by its namesake, Gustave Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower was established as a veritable technical feat, an engineering marvel of epic proportions. It was built to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution for the 1889 Paris Exposition. It was never intended to be permanent. In fact, it was to have been taken down in 1909 and moved somewhere else. Even before it was fully constructed, the tower was already at the heart of a heated debate. For one, several prominent artists and architects protested on artistic grounds and started a petition called, quote, 
Artists Against the Eiffel Tower. After its construction, the tower still caused divisions among Parisians. They felt as though the unsightly technical monstrosity should be demolished. They felt that it didn't fit with the city's other great monuments, like the Gothic cathedrals. Victor had finally found his next scheme. One evening, Victor strolled into the Hotel de Crillon, a prestigious stone palace on the Place de la Concorde, displaying stationery adorned with a French government seal and pretended to be the deputy director of the French Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. He'd written to the largest metal scrap dealers in Paris, requesting meetings, lucrative ones, he said, and demanding their utmost discretion. In a quiet hotel room, he conducted secret meetings with representatives from several metal scrap companies, telling them that a decision had been made to take bids for the right to demolish the tower and receive possession of 7,000 tons of metal. He even rented limousines and took those representatives on a tour, an inspection of the tower. He subtly mentioned that the tower would be sold to the highest bidder. The bids started to flow in, and one André Poisson, who was fairly new to Paris, caught Victor's attention. He was the perfect mark. All Victor had to do was bait and catch him. Victor told Poisson that he was a poor public official on a measly salary and that finding a buyer for the tower was an extremely important decision. Poisson took the bait. He suspected that Victor was asking for a bribe, which wasn't very uncommon among Parisian bureaucrats at the time. Poisson recognized that he was dealing with just another corrupt government official. So, he agreed to pay the supposed deputy director over $20,000 in cash, plus an additional $50,000, if Lustig could ensure that Poisson would win the bid. When Victor obtained the $70,000, he wasted no time fleeing to Austria. Unfortunately, Poisson never reported Victor's scam to the police, just as Victor had suspected, possibly out of shame for having been conned and duped. Victor figured that no news was good news and returned to Paris to try to sell the tower once again. But when he began to suspect that one of the new scrap dealers that he'd contacted had notified the police, he fled to the United States. Now, he became America's problem again. In the US, Victor returned to scamming people with his Romanian money box. He'd been arrested numerous times, some say almost 40 times, and had escaped or beaten the rap each time. A Texas sheriff was duped of tens of thousands of dollars with the money box gambit. When the sheriff tracked Victor down in Chicago, 
Victor managed to trick him into believing that he'd simply misunderstood the mechanics of the contraption. Victor handed the sheriff a large sum of money as compensation for his grievances, but the money turned out to be counterfeit cash. In Chicago, during the Great Depression, Victor managed to persuade the infamous mafia chief Al Capone to lend him $50,000, saying that he needed it to finance a scam. He promised to repay double the amount in two months. Victor, never intending to do anything with the money but win Capone's trust, stuffed it in a safe in his room and returned it two months later. He claimed the scam had gone horribly wrong and in effect played a risky mind game on him to get him to part with a small amount of cash. It worked. The mafia chief was so impressed with Victor's honesty and integrity that he handed him $5,000 to quote, tied him over. Victor partnered with two men from Nebraska, a pharmacist, William Watts, and a chemist, Tom Shaw. Together, the three of them wished to conduct a massive counterfeiting operation. Using plates, paper, and ink that could emulate the red and green threads in authentic banknotes, he produced and distributed nearly $100,000 in counterfeit cash each month. He organized a ring of unsuspecting couriers to distribute the notes. They had no idea they were dealing with counterfeits. Towards the end of the year, the counterfeit bills were so well circulated across the country, they caught the attention of the Secret Service. The bills, referred to as lustig money, were so well distributed and kept turning up at numerous banks that they threatened to disrupt the country's entire monetary system. In fact, it was feared that a run of counterfeit notes this large could shake international confidence in the US dollar. A Secret Service agent named Peter A. Robano vowed to track Victor down. Robano had gained fame for capturing the notorious gangster Ignacio the Wolf Lupo and Victor had been under his radar for years. A cat-and-mouse game to catch Lustig ensued. Victor was a master of disguise. He could transform easily into a priest, rabbi, bellhop or porter. On May 10th, 1935, Victor was arrested on New York's Upper West Side after his jealous mistress, Billy May, learned that he was having an affair with Tom Shaw's mistress and called the cops on him. As agents surrounded Victor, thrilled to have finally cornered a man they'd been painstakingly chasing and shadowing for years, a man so notorious for swindling victims of millions of dollars, Victor calmly handed over his suitcase and never resisted arrest. Under questioning, he was calm, cool, and collected. One secret agent referred to him as smooth. The agents confiscated his suitcase and expected it to contain freshly printed banknotes from various Federal Reserve series, or perhaps other tools of Victor's million-dollar counterfeiting trade. 
but all they found were expensive clothes. Victor did have a key on him that opened a locker in Times Square. In the locker, the agents found a set of plates and $51,000 in counterfeit currency. This was a short-lived win for the Secret Service. For the Sunday before Labor Day, using a rope made from bed sheets, Victor managed to escape from his cell in the Federal Detention Center. Dressed in prison-issue dungarees and slippers, he'd casually shibby down the side of the building, pretending to be a window wiper. Dozens of passers-by saw him and thought nothing of it at all. When the guards entered his cell, they allegedly found a note on his pillow. It contained an extract from Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. It said, quote, He allowed himself to be led in a promise. Jean Valjean had his promise. Even to a convict, especially to a convict. It may give the convict confidence and guide him on the right path. Law was not made by God. And man can be wrong. He was finally captured in Pittsburgh while attempting to make a quick getaway in his car. An FBI agent, G.K. Firestone, who was watching Victor from his hiding position, gave the signal to a colleague when he saw him emerge from his hideaway and enter a waiting car outside. A roaring car chase ensued and persisted for over nine blocks when the agents ultimately rammed their car into Victor's, locking their wheels together. Swiftly, the agents jumped out of their car, ran over to Lustig's vehicle and pointed their service weapons at him. In November 1935, Victor was presented before a judge in New York the prosecution's star witness was none other than the recently arrested William Watts. He recounted every aspect of the trio's counterfeiting operation. Both Victor and Watts were sentenced to 15 years on Alcatraz. Victor, however, received an additional five years for his previous escape from prison. In December 1946, the cold weather got the better of old Victor. Reportedly, he'd made an astounding 1,192 medical requests and filled 507 prescriptions during his time on Alcatraz. The prison guards didn't believe him. They believed he was faking his illness, that it was all an elaborate act as a means to plot his escape. They were justified in thinking this as they'd found torn sheets in his cell. He was effectively the man who cried wolf. Victor was soon transferred to a medical facility in Missouri, where doctors confirmed that he'd contracted pneumonia. On March 9th, 1947, Victor Lustig passed away at the age of 57. His death certificate listed his occupation as an apprentice salesman. Interestingly enough, according to Jeff Mesh, author of The Handsome Devil, in March 2015, Thomas Andel, 
a historian who hails from Victor's hometown of Hostine, commenced a tireless pursuit for biographical information on the town's most infamous former resident. He combed through archived records rescued from Nazi bonfires, scanned the electoral rolls, and studied several historical documents. Victor claimed that he was born and raised in Hostine, remember, by poor peasant parents? Yet Andel could never find his name mentioned in the list of pupils attending local primary school at the time. In fact, Andel couldn't find a scrap of evidence that Victor ever lived in Hostine. It can be concluded, as a result of Andel's search, that we may never know the true identity of the world's smoothest con man. Hey guys, that's a wrap on this episode of Grifter. If you enjoyed tuning in, head over to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and subscribe and leave us a review. Links to the sources I used to research this episode are also included in the description. Until next time, stay home and stay safe.